So you can see in our text this morning that the Pharisees and the religious leaders filled with hot rage and violent fury directed and aimed with laser-like focus upon Jesus Christ went out, according to verse 14, and conspired with each other. And they even, according to Mark, went out and clasped their hands with the Herodians in order, in order to hatch a plan to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Herodians, Herodians were those ones, those guys who supported the Herods. The Herods were Roman puppets set above Jewish territories, and they were the ones who ruined in the minds of the Pharisees any unified chance, any chance of bringing Israel together in any unified fashion to agitate and struggle and fight for independence from Rome. And here they are, clasping hands with these people that they hate so much. They united in hatred against Jesus with these people that they hated so much. They wanted to kill, the Herodians wanted to kill their only hope for independence. And so they clasped their hands with them. And what is it that sparked this seething outrage in the Pharisees and the scribes? If you ask them, they would have most definitely pointed the finger at Jesus and said, it was him, it's him. But for what? What could they point to? Because in essence, Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus had spoken truthful words, gracious words, merciful and compassionate words to the crowds. And not only did he speak these types of words to the crowds, but he also healed them all. You see that in verse uh, 15. He withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all. He healed the people of their long-standing physical torments, of their sicknesses. Now, how could anyone look at such a man as Jesus Christ and think it appropriate to go out and conspire with the wicked of the world ways by which to destroy him? How did we get here? You see, the final straw for the religious leaders came when Jesus entered their synagogue on this day and they asked Jesus a question. Now, they didn't ask Jesus this question in order to get any truth from him. They didn't ask him this question so that they might hear the answer and believe it. No, look at what the text tells us in verse 10. They asked him this question so that they might accuse him. Do you see that? So that they might accuse him. Oh, the stunningly obvious hypocrisy of these Pharisees, right? On the one hand, they point out any and all violations of their man-made traditions. You remember they did that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. When the disciples went through the grain fields and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat, the Pharisees saw them and they said, Look, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. It was these same Pharisees so committed to the minute details of their extra-biblical traditions who see no issue with then holding counsel together to conspire for the murder of Jesus. They get angry when their traditions are broken, but then have no, no actual like problem with breaking one of the clear commandments of the Lord in Exodus chapter 20. Murder, do not murder, is a clear set out command given to us in the top ten. 
And in our own day, we can see much the same, right? Whenever some issue in the world or some topic that Scripture leaves up to the conscience of the individual Christian is raised up so high in the minds of, and the, of, the, of one who professes Christ that they see no problem with breaking a command in order to see their particular issue adhered to and agreed with. They have no, com- no problem breaking a command that is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ as the identifying mark of the saved Christian. And do you know what that is? What is the identifying mark of the saved Christian? Love for and unity with your fellow believer. You remember it, right? If you go to John chapter 13... In verse 34, Jesus said this to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And listen to this in 1335, By this, by what? By this love that you have for one another, the same type of love with which I've loved you, by this, all people will know that you are my my disciples, if you have love for one another. And in John chapter 17, In verse 21, Jesus is praying for us, all who would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the gospel proclaimed to us in the future. He's praying in verse 21, and he says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Pharisees loved to despise and look down upon anyone who didn't agree with them, and they were even ready and willing to go and break the clear commandments of the Lord and fool themselves into thinking that they weren't breaking any commands in order to see their traditions and their opinions upheld. They despised and looked down upon their fellow countrymen, and in many ways I've seen Christians, professing Christians, despising and looking down upon their brothers and sisters, those who Jesus owns as his children because of their traditions, opinions, and preferences. And in my eyes, it's reminiscent to me of this Jew and Herodian alliance against God's beloved son to clasp hands with the world and to look down upon your fellow believer. Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually discusses this in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians, when he said, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, if we go back to our text here, the question that the Pharisees asked when Jesus entered into their synagogue, the one that got them so upset when he answered it, is this in verse 10. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In other words, while they might not be saying it, what they're asking is this. Is it lawful to be merciful to a man on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good to him on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to alleviate his suffering? 
Is it lawful to help such a downtrodden man as this one right before us? And as they asked Jesus this question, they pointed to him as a man sat there suffering from paralysis in it or a withering of his hand. And Jesus, as we know, who is ever compassionate and ever merciful, he spoke the truth to those in attendance that day. And he pointed out and revealed what had long been buried, what had long been hidden by the interpretive errors of those proud, arrogant, self-loving, self-centered, self-seeking religious leaders. And the peoples who were there watching this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees on this day, those listening to the words, both heard and witnessed the complete total and utter silencing of the religious leaders because when they asked him this question, Jesus pointed out to them, or Jesus responded to them with clear, pointed questions that displayed to everyone in attendance the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. And he asked them in verse 11, which one of you, which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. The question is both incisive and direct. Because according to Jewish traditions and man-made laws, their man-made laws, the act of actually taking hold of a sheep to, to lift it out of the pit would indeed break their traditions and their laws. It would indeed constitute a work and so break the laws that they claim to care so much about. And yet, even so, these same religious leaders who were so focused on everyone else's adherence to their laws would, by hook or by crook, have gotten that sheep out of that pit. When it came right down to it, they might not actually lift the sheep out of the hole and so break their laws, but such a situation had actually been discussed by the rabbis and the religious leaders. And such is the deceptive human heart that justifies itself at every turn. This human heart that the Pharisees possessed would find a way to get the sheep out of that pit while still convincing itself that it is filled with integrity and filled with obedience. It's actually quite a laughable practice in those like the Pharisees who pass themselves off as holy men and yet possess hearts filled with anger and rage and bitterness and malice and wickedness. You see, the rabbis taught that you couldn't actually take hold of the sheep and lift it out. But if you really wanted to, if your sheep was in a pit, you could throw it some pillows. You could throw it some blankets. You could throw it some things in that hole so that it might be more comfortable. And hey, you know... If you just happen to throw enough pillows into the hole and that sheep use those pillows to climb out of the hole, hey, great. You got your sheep back and you didn't do any work. Bonus. The Pharisees and the scribes are here trying to trap Jesus, but we see them as those who simply point out the failures of others to follow their own laws while consistently and craftily finding ways to evade those laws themselves. They cunningly convinced themselves and they justified to others when they skirted their own laws. 
but they pointed the finger at everyone else for their even the most minute disobedience to their traditions. The absolute, think about it, the absolute hypocrisy of saying to yourself, while we can't take hold of a sheep and lift it out, we can throw enough pillows down for it to lie on, and if it happens to find its way out of the pit, great. But you who pluck grain on the Sabbath, when you're hungry, you deserve to die. It's, hypo- it's such hypocrisy, isn't it? And everyone in the synagogue on this day, they knew it to be true. All knew that these same Pharisees, along with everyone in attendance, would get their sheep out of that pit. It's too valuable for them to leave in that pit on the off chance that it might die. And so they would get it out of there and they would justify their getting the sheep out of that pit and still claim to be obedient followers of the very laws that they broke. This is how ridiculous the whole system had become. And we know in the New Testament that Jesus closes all these loopholes, right? He makes it clear that it's the intention of your heart that is important too. It's not just breaking the commandment to murder that is a sin, but it's also harboring anger in your heart against your brother, which is a form of murder that is sin. It's not just the actual act of committing adultery that is a sin, but it's lusting in your heart against, uh, uh, for, someone of the, uh, for another person that is sin. And Jesus said in Matthew 15 that it's out of your heart that all of these evils and wickednesses come from. And this is what the Pharisees had done. This is where the Pharisees were on this day. Now, it's easy for us to go back and look at these Pharisees and scoff. Look at these guys. What a bunch of hypocrites they are. But I want you to know this. These Pharisees aren't just put in Scripture so that we could look at them and scoff. The Pharisees are recorded in Scripture as mirrors into our own hearts. They reflect back to us the same tendencies that are present in our own hearts. You and I can be very skilled in the practice of deceiving ourselves in our sin, can't we? The amount of professing believers who justify their sins is actually quite mind-boggling. People justifying fornication, people justifying unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, people using all, of, all sorts of ways to justify it while still thinking to themselves, God understands me, God knows what's going on in my heart, God knows I'm pretty good, everything is good. But throughout Scripture, we read such words like this from the Apostle Paul, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's time for us to stop justifying our sin and claiming at the same time to be obedient to Christ. You and I will be consistently tempted to justify ourselves, to make subtle rules and distinctions for ourselves in order to bypass true, pure, single-minded devotion and obedience to the Lord. While still telling us ourselves that we're good. Now, you know... If your own metaphorical sheep falls into a pit, whatever that might be, something you value highly, some sin in your life that you really want to hold on to, maybe it's money, maybe it's possessions, maybe it's reputation, whatever it is, if your metaphorical sheep is threatened, we, like the Pharisees, will oftentimes do whatever we must to protect and save that sheep, right? 
Even if it means that we evade or ignore or walk around or work around God's command to love Him above all, to love neighbor as ourself. And the worst part is that we, like the Pharisees, will still fool ourselves and will still try to fool others that we are holy. We will try to pass ourselves off with this appearance of holiness, this appearance of piety, this appearance of obedience. And Jesus here is saying, this is, these are the lengths that you Pharisees will go to to ensure that you can get your sheep out of a pit. This is the, these are the lengths that humans will go to to deceive and to justify themselves that they are following the laws while they're not. And if you will go to such lengths to get that sheep out of a pit, if you will bend your, your own laws, break your own laws, and convince yourselves that you are justified in doing so, if Pharisee and Christian alike can so easily spin intricate webs of deception for themselves to get a sheep out of a pit, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, how can you not see that this man right here in front of you is worth so much more effort? Why not sacrifice your traditions and your man-made laws to show mercy on this man right here? For this one who is in desperate need of compassion, why would you go to all that trouble to get your sheep out of a pit, but then refuse to lift a finger to help your fellow human being? Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And the answer to that question is simple. A human being is of immeasurably more value than a sheep. A human being is the pinnacle of God's creation. A human being is one upon whom God places great value and great worth. Now, it's not because you are worth something or I am worth something. It's because God is so wonderfully loving that He places value upon us. And so the question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus said in verse 12, You bet it is. You bet it is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The idea being, it is always the right time for doing good. It is always the right time for mercy. It is always the right time for compassion. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they had lost the capacity to see the human being in front of them. Their hearts were hardened to the point that they simply couldn't empathize with the struggles and the pains and the trials and the sufferings of the people before them. They had no category by which to express compassion for others, to love them, to show them mercy. And so what they liked to do was give the appearance of holiness while not actually being holy themselves. It's utter hypocrisy. It's what Jesus is rebuking here. It's what he is addressing and revealing to us and to them as barren and pointless. This idea of appearing holy, but having everything underneath not holy. And this is a a pressure that you and I are facing in our culture and in our life, right? We live now in the Facebook and social media culture. And on Facebook and social media, every single one of us, we put on those social media sites a finely curated picture of our life, right? 
And we do that because we're trying to keep up with everyone else's finely curated pictures of their own life. So we always think that we're not doing quite as good as everyone else. Their lives are so perfect. They've got all the filters on their pictures of themselves with a beach or eating a, eating a sandwich or whatever else it is that you guys put on Facebook. I'm not on those things because, like I say all the time, they are the scourge of human communication. But if you recall, for those of us who lived and breathed before the social media time became exploded, you remember, right? Those same people that now curate their lives online, we hung out with them. We spent time with them. We saw their frizzy hair. We smelled their bad breath. We, had, we knew when they had BO. So it was easy to say, look, they're not that perfect. Now you don't. And there's this pressure mounting for us to not only show finely crafted and curated lives online, but even amongst our brothers and sisters. Enough with it. Enough with the hypocrisy. Enough with the deceit. Let me just tell you something. You're a mess. Anyone disagree? I'm a mess. We are all a mess. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. Enough with passing ourselves off like the Pharisees who, thought, who wanted everyone to think that they were. What help is that? Lean on the community of the saints. And so as Jesus looks at this man, while these Pharisees who are passing themselves off with the appearance of holiness are standing there, he said, stretch out your hand in verse 13, and the man's hand was restored and healthy like the others, and the religious leaders in their fury went out to hatch a plot to kill Jesus, which is interesting, right? Given that Jesus didn't actually do anything. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't apply any creams. He didn't make any uh, pronouncements. He didn't tell the guy to take up his mat and walk. He simply said, stretch out your hand. Now, stretching out your hand is not something that is forbidden on the Sabbath, or else nobody could move. Just said, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand was normal. And these... Pharisees went out and plotted to kill him as a result. The, the hearts and the dispositions of the Pharisees are laid bare as Jesus sees this man's arm, hand healed. Now, here I want you to notice what Jesus did. He was aware of their plans, and look at what verse 15 and 16 tell us. Jesus aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So you see that we're, here, we're seeing a contrast painted between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees here. Whereas the Pharisees are following Jesus around, intent on quarreling with him and arguing with him and fighting with him and accusing him and agitating crowds against him, look at what Jesus does. He simply withdraws. You see that? He simply withdraws from there because Jesus isn't about to argue with them. He's not about to fight with them. He will most definitely proclaim God's word clearly, graciously, and truthfully to the crowds, but he'll do so in gentle, meek fashion. He will labor in those crowds to point them to the love of the Father. But he is so focused on his mission to seek and to save the lost that he will not be derailed. He will not be sidetracked by the argumentative nature of the Pharisees. 
Had he wanted to, I suppose he could have spent all of his time debating with the Pharisees and contesting with them. But what might that have meant? Let's just say Jesus decided, I'm going I'm to spend my time arguing with these hypocrites. What would that have meant for the lost sheep of the house of Israel? What might that have meant for the weary and the heavy laden who need rest? You see, quarreling with the Pharisees here on this occasion would simply not propel the mission forward. It would not contribute to his task in any way. So he simply left. And the crowds left with him, and he healed them all. See, Matthew here is pointing out to us something, that Jesus was nothing like the Pharisees in this regard. And so he quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah in verses 18 to 21 in order to show that this is what was expected all along. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders were the types who were always up for a fight. They were characterized by a penchant for quarreling and hostility and pride and arrogance. They were, they were characterized by being a people who judged others and set themselves up against and over others. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were always out in the streets crying out, finding people to condemn. They were always rabble-rousing. They were always initiating protests and riots among the Jewish populace, calling on them to take it to the streets against Roman oppression and sinful idolatry, uh, the sinful idolatry of Rome. And they did all of this because they hoped that by these things they would achieve their independence. But the scriptures were clear. If Israel wants independence, the Lord said in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, return to me and I will return to you. In other words, repent. Repentance is, repentance was the cure. And when it suited the Pharisees, they would rally up the crowds and sick them on those whom they had rested their hostility and hatred. We see this near the end of Jesus' life on earth, right? when they arrested him under the cover of night, when they instigated a number of false witnesses to come forward and testify against Jesus, alleging that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and of sedition against Rome. It was the religious leaders who... who uh, the whole company of chief priests and scribes that brought Jesus to Pilate, accusing Christ of, according to Luke misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a king. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, you see that Pilate tried to release Jesus. And it's these same religious leaders who love to rabble-rouse and love to stir up the crowds. It was them who all shouted and got the crowds to shout, Crucify him! And then when Pilate tried to release Jesus again, it said they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified, and listen, their voices prevailed. This seems to be the way of the world in so many respects, right? Get out there, agitate, quarrel, shout, demand with loud cries until you get what you want, demand until your voice prevails. It most certainly worked for the Pharisees in the death of Christ. It most certainly worked for them on a number of occasions outside of this as well. It worked for them all the time until it didn't. Eventually, their fondness 
and their inclination for protest brought the full weight of the Roman Empire down upon them. And the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem. All the buildings were razed. The temple was razed and destroyed, as Jesus said they would be. And the city was renamed to Aelia Capitolina. And Matthew here, in quoting this prophetic word from Isaiah, intends to reveal to the reader the stark difference between our Lord and the religious leaders in Israel. One of the reasons the Pharisees and religious leaders had such a hard time with Jesus is because he didn't fit their expectations. He didn't do what they did. He didn't say what they said. He wasn't cut to their mold. You see, they were looking for a Messiah who would join in with the protests and the quarrels. They were looking for a Messiah who would lead armed revolts against Rome. They hoped for a king in the vein of David, who First Chronicles tells us was a man who shed much blood and waged great wars. But what they didn't grasp was, yes, there is coming a day when Messiah will Actually, as Psalm tells us, the Psalm verse two, chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, he will break the nations that are opposed to God with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is coming a day when Messiah will return to make war against all the peoples and all the systems that have set themselves up against the Lord, as we read in Revelation 19. These are the sights that characterize the second coming of our Lord. But as the prophet Isaiah reveals here, or makes clear here, his first coming would be radically different. At the first coming of Jesus, Messiah would not come to condemn an already condemned world. But instead, his first coming would be marked with gentleness and mildness, a lack of quarreling, a lack of warring, a lack of arguing, and instead he would seek and save the lost. He would be the man of compassion and mercy. He will be everything the religious leaders are not. He will be the exact opposite of everything that they expected. And so Jesus withdrew from the presence of the Pharisees instead of fighting with them. And Matthew sees this as the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. You see that, right? So exactly what did the Lord declare through Isaiah about Messiah's first coming? We see six things. We'll try to motor through them quick here. First, Messiah is servant of the Father in heaven. You see that in verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Messiah, or our Lord Jesus Christ, is servant. And Jesus himself made this clear in Matthew 20 when he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Messiah comes to earth, or when Messiah came to earth, he would be focused with unrelenting determination on accomplishing the will of the Father. This was the very thing that sustained Jesus throughout his earthly life. His priority in all his healings, in all his teaching, in all his preaching, in all of his mighty works was the glorification of the Father in the redemption of lost sinners. And Jesus explicitly said this to the disciples. Remember, the disciples were urging Jesus, according to John, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Notice that Jesus is the chosen servant of the Father. 
The determined decision, the choice and decree of God was to commit the accomplishment of this most important and magnificent work of redeeming lost sinners, of calling lost sinners home, of calling us to believe in, to put our faith in, to trust in the Savior Jesus Christ is his mission. As servant of the Father, Messiah would not be swayed to follow human expectations, but he would focus every ounce of energy into obeying and accomplishing the Father's will. Second, Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is also the Father's beloved. You see that in the next verse there? Behold, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. See, the Apostle John wrote in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The idea here being that it is Jesus who makes the Father known. I love the clarity of Scripture. Jesus, who is Himself the image and the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus, who is, according to Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This Jesus, according to John is at the Father's side. However, that's the ESV translation. The ESV here takes a little bit of the tenderness and the love away from the picture and uses a rather wooden word choice, at the Father's side. Listen to the New American Standard more accurately translate this text. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Being in the bosom pictures or symbolizes the, the place of great love and great affection. Third, not only will Messiah be servant and beloved, but Messiah will also be empowered for his mission by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. See, the Holy Spirit was was upon Jesus from the very beginning of his incarnation, right from his conception. We read in Matthew 1 that uh, as the angel, of, the angel of the Lord revealed to Joseph about Mary's pregnancy this, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for, for he will save his people from their sins. And then at his baptism, we read that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And what was this empowerment of the Spirit for? What was it meant to accomplish? Look at the next little line of the text. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to hear that word not as it is used today, but as it is used by Matthew. The preaching of justice here means the preaching of that which is correct, right, and just. Messiah will, by the power, empowerment of the Holy Spirit, preach and proclaim the truth of God. He will announce the wonders of deliverance from the penalties of sin to all, all, whether Jew or Gentile, who turn to him in faith and trust. And the religious leaders, they were hoping that Messiah would be a political redeemer, a political redeemer only, a redeemer who focused on Israel alone. But no, look at what it says in the text. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The idea here being that anyone, he takes away the sins of anyone and everyone 
from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, every culture, every ethnic background, every socioeconomic status, anyone and everyone who repents and believes in his name. Fourthly, while Messiah will be servant, beloved, and empowered by the Spirit for mission, he will also, fourthly, be quiet. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So in the heat of and in the midst of and in the trenches of his mission to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, our Lord will not give up. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out in frustration because the task is too difficult or because the task is, the mission is unfolding too slowly. The Spirit upon him will bring about patience and endurance and steadfastness even as opposition rises and searches for ways to destroy him. Look at the first one. Jesus, Messiah, will not quarrel. The word here for quarrel means to argue in a noisy, disruptive, or angry fashion. Unlike the Pharisees who made it their aim to quarrel and dispute with each other and with others over the minute details of their man-made laws and traditions, Jesus remained gentle and lowly, withdrawing from those contentious situations that did not amplify or contribute to his mission of redemption. Jesus would also not cry aloud, the text says. The word here means raise up revolts or rebellions or protests. So you see, while the Pharisees and other Jews were constantly involving the nation of Israel in revolts and in turbulence and rebellions and in uprising, uprisings, while they were constantly seeking to incite the mob, Messiah, as Isaiah prophesied centuries earlier, would be completely different. He would lead a quiet yet determined life an alternative to the same old things that humans have done when they don't like something. Jesus will not be sidetracked from his role as servant by engaging in the conflicts of those who are focused solely on the things of earth. But he will instead remain firm in his mission to minister in his most merciful and compassionate way to the weak and the downtrodden. And he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Meaning, Jesus will not take it to the streets and stir up rebellions, nor will he shout down those who contend with him. He would not be sidetracked into meaningless acts when the great task of accomplishing the Father's work was entrusted to him. In like manner, the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted to you, saints, the same work. He has entrusted to you a mission. He has entrusted to us as a church the work of bearing his name in and proclaiming his name to the world as we see in Matthew 28. We who love Christ here on earth have two roads set before us. One that imitates our Savior, merciful, compassionate, gentle, lowly, and one that imitates the Pharisees rebelling, revolting, quarreling, stirring up disputes. Fifthly, Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah arrived, he would be servant, beloved, empowered by the Spirit for mission, quiet, and fifthly, he will be gentle and tender and compassionate. See verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. See, reeds were and are used 
for a number of reasons. I remember being in seventh grade and I had to use a reed for saxophone. They made me play it. I didn't do any good at it, but they made me play it. And when the reed got a split in it or something happened to it, they would make you throw it away and buy a new one. And in those days, they were, I don't know what they cost now, but in those days, they were 75 cents a piece. That's a fortune for a grade seven kid in 1990. And so I always kept using the same split reed, even though it sounded like a shrieking cat. But here, the picture of a bruised reed used by Jesus illustrates the gentle and compassionate love of Christ. A crushed, broken, mistreated person who is weak and lowly, abused by the world, a person that the world considers worthy of nothing but being snapped and thrown into the trash heap, Jesus will be tender to and compassionate with and merciful upon. Unlike the Pharisees who loved to break down the weary and heavy laden, Christ condescends to all who call on him, binds up our wounds, renews us, and restores us, because a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. The smoldering wick in this day, in, in a world that is lit by the light of fire, a smoldering wick was one that couldn't maintain a bright flame, but could only produce weak heat and dim, flickering flame. Not enough to light up the room. It was defective, tossed out to be replaced by a wick that could hold the flame. But Messiah, when he comes, would not extinguish and snuff out those whom the Pharisees and the world considered worthless. No, Messiah, gentle and compassionate to those who are trampled upon in the world, will exhibit compassion for the weak and tender care. This is the hallmark of the ministry of Jesus, that all who sense their unworthiness, all who have been cast off by the world, and even those who are crushed by others who claim to be servants of the Lord Jesus, but who in no way reflect Jesus, because that's a common argument used against the church, right? The hypocrites who act like the Pharisees and yet act in opposite ways to the God they claim to serve. If that's you, if you're broken by those people, if you're broken by the world, Jesus said, come, look to me, call out to me. I will not break you I will not quench you, smoldering wick. So to all of you, fearful as you are, call out to the Lord Jesus. You, fellow believer, I don't care what your opinions are about things going on in the world today, you are called to this to imitate your Lord Jesus Christ, to be a person of tender mercy and genuine compassion, to impart strength to the weak, to impart courage to the fearful. Look to Jesus who healed the sick. Look to Jesus who seeks and who saves the lost, who calls bruised reeds and tax collectors into his service. And know this, the world might look like it's going down the tubes. It always does. Every generation says this. You might think that the world needs you to act more like a Pharisee in it and to it. You might believe that unlike Jesus, you must quarrel, cry aloud, break and quench smoldering wicks, but let me tell you something, you do not. And how do I know that? How do I know that you do not? Because of the last thing that we see prophesied in Isaiah. Sixthly, Messiah will be victorious. 
Messiah will be victorious. As we read in the next line, until he brings justice to victory. The Lord Jesus Christ will continue caring for the bruised weeds, reeds and the smoldering wicks until the days when truth is fully and clearly revealed throughout the world. When the truth of Christ is fully and authoritatively established by him, <clears throat> Messiah himself will batter down all the obstacles, all the gates, all structures, all systems, all worldviews, all belief systems, all idols, all false religions, everything that is opposes the establishment of the Lord's righteousness in this world, the Lord will faithfully bring forth his justice to bear against all of them. And he will break them down. He will establish justice in the earth. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The Gentiles, that means all of us in here who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are this. We are who he's being, who's being referred to here. We place our faith in him. And so you see, there really is no need to fear anything, to fear anyone in this world. There really is no need for agitations, quarrelings, crying out, making your voice heard in the streets. Why? Because Jesus has already been foretold and revealed to us as victorious. The Lord has already revealed the end to us, justice. God's righteousness wins. So what must we do then while we are here? We must ensure that we are not breaking reeds, that we are not quenching smoldering wicks. We must be wary of commanding others to take upon themselves the yoke that we would have them bear rather than the yoke that Christ would put on us. We must be consistently striving against our pharisaical tendencies and striving for the imitation of Christ. Christ, meek, gentle, lowly, merciful, compassionate. So your role in this world, in closing, is to avoid being sidetracked by our pharisaical tendencies and by our flesh. Our role in this world is to hold out to the world the message that Christ called them to. Our message, the message we are called to hold out to the world is this. Come to Jesus all who labor and who are heavy laden. And Jesus will give you rest. Take the yoke of Jesus upon you and learn from Jesus because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For the yoke of Jesus is easy and the burden of Jesus is light. Father, I praise you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I praise you for leading and guiding your servant Matthew to record for us the failures of the Pharisees. And I pray, Lord, that as we read and we look into the lives and the dispositions of the Pharisees, that we wouldn't easily scoff at them, but that we would allow the intention for their re recording in the Gospels to bear its fruit that we would check our own hearts, that we would look inside ourselves for those areas in which we resemble the Pharisees rather than the Messiah. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us and inspire in us this unbelievable confidence in the facts that have been revealed to us that you are 
and you will be victorious. And Lord, if we know that you have the victory and we know that you will establish justice, if we know that this has already been set down and prophesied and it is an unalterable future, then I pray that you would help us to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ with no fear in this world and call people to the saving knowledge of him. Father, let us live above this world. Let us look up from this world. Let us not be agitated by this world. Let us see the people in this world, the human beings in this world, as those who are deceived by the enemy and in desperate need of the rest that Christ holds out to them. I pray that we would not break bruised reeds. I pray that we would not quench smoldering wicks, but that we would be tender and merciful people. This is only possible by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in us. And so I pray for this reality to bear fruit in our lives by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.